Today we are beginning a series called The Gospel of Amazing Grace. And we're just going to march right through the book of Galatians. And as we do so, we're going to discover, I think, along the journey that there's a, uh, a need for a fresh awareness of the gospel in our lives. A fresh awareness to what grace really is. Some of the message titles in the series are presented in such a way to challenge our thinking about the gospel and grace. Today's message is called Perverted Grace. Other titles include the Offensive Grace and Radical Grace and finally just People Hate Grace. (laughs) You see, what we have to understand is from the very start of the study of this book, The gospel of grace, the way grace operates, is completely foreign to the way the world operates. It it goes against every fiber in our body to accept this simple message. And if if you try, even the slightest, to, to make grace fit into our world and our understanding of things, you've perverted it. You've made it something that it's not. And that's exactly what is going on in the churches of Galatia. It's still happening in the churches of America. It's still happening in churches all around the world today. It's just, we look at grace, we understand grace, and we say it's, it needs a little help. <laughs> it can't be right. Grace seems so wrong. It seems so unfair. It seems so illogical. And we struggle with it. We struggle with it in the church. We're continually trying to put things onto grace, attach things, and we just think it needs our help. Our traditions, our values, our routines, our lifestyles. A little background on the book of Galatians as we begin. This this book was written around 50 to 55 AD, which would make it 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ. And it's a letter fully devoted to addressing a social and racial division in the churches in this region, which is modern-day Turkey. The Jews, had become, um, the Jews who had become Christians had incorporated Christianity into their Judaism. In fact, many of them thought that Christianity was a, a new Jewish movement. <laughs> And they, they, they not only were mixing Christianity with their history and their traditions, but they said, if you want to be a Christian, even if you're not a Jew, guess what? Welcome to the life of Judaism. We want you to obey all of the customs and the traditions that we have, uh, including our dietary restrictions. We want you to be circumcised, the males, and all other things pertaining to Jewish custom and law. Because unless you do that, you're not fully pleasing, you're not fully acceptable to who God is and what He wants to do in your life. Now, you may be sitting there today and saying, you know, this, this, this whole discussion is far from us today. We don't deal with this anymore, do we? I'm here to tell you, this letter of Paul's is so strong. The language is so strong. Because Paul is saying, this is the heart of the matter. If you start messing with grace, (laughs) there's just no hope. There's nothing left. 
He's perpetuating this truth, and it's this. The gospel cannot be altered without totally destroying it. You cannot slice just a little bit off of it. You cannot just attach one little thing. You can't mess with it, or you completely destroy it. Christ plus anything else for acceptance by God is a perversion of the pure and true gospel of grace. And to Paul, everything's at stake. This this means everything. If the church lost the gospel, then it loses its way, it loses its message, it loses its influence. And all hope for the world is lost. One thing that is so striking about the book of Galatians, when you really stop and think about it, and it's often missed, is when we think about the gospel, who needs the gospel? You know, people today believe, well, the gospel is what we preach to unbelievers to try to convince them of their situation that they will come to Christ. Is the book of Galatians written to the unbeliever? No. It's written to the church. So is there a need for a fresh awareness of the gospel in your life every single day? (laughs) Yes. Look at how Paul starts the first five verses. He says this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, whom raised him, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Paul starts right off by giving his credentials, so to speak. He's going to go into more detail of that later. But he says, I I was not called by men. He says, I have received a calling straight from Jesus to deliver the pure gospel of grace. He's saying there wasn't a denominational board that met and said, I kind of want you to go here. His calling came directly from Jesus. And what he does in these first verses, uh, if you know the works of Paul, it's kind of striking the way this book starts. Have you read uh, the other letters of Paul to the churches? He's always very kind. He says, I remember fondly you. He says, I, I long to be with you. I, I just love you. Sorry, no kind words for the churches of Galatia. He says, peace to you, grace to you, now I'm going to talk to you. And here are the points that he makes in this first five verses. I give you a hint, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. He's going to give us in five verses the gospel, the whole reason the church exists, the whole mission of Christ. Here it is. And then he's going to spend the rest of the six chapters saying why we need to come back to the gospel. Here's his points. First, he says we live in an evil age. Do you think we live in an evil age? The history of man is one of evil, not of good. Secondly, he says we need rescued from this evil age. We need to be delivered. We need to be saved. The actual word here means to be plucked out, to be torn out, completely removed. When it was something was trying to hold on to us, it removed us. Thirdly, Jesus gave himself for our sins. 
You see the wording there? Jesus gave himself for our sins. He died. Our sins can be removed. It's that simple. In verse 1, it says, The Father raised Jesus from the dead. We have the death and we have the resurrection here in the first five verses. Jesus not only forgives our sins, but replaces it with the resurrected life of, of his Holy Spirit in us. And five, Jesus receives all glory for all time. There's the gospel. We've been born into an evil place with an evil bent in our own hearts and our own souls. We need deliverance. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We can't save ourselves. Jesus died on the cross so that we who were undeserving could have our sins forgiven. He rose from the dead so that the new life that he lives can now live in us. And so we cannot take any glory because it's not us who achieved any of this. And so he receives all the glory for all things, for all time, and that's the gospel. And so I would ask you today, what else is needed to complete the gospel and the message of the church? What, what should we add to this in order to make it a little bit more complete? Well, you know, I think, I think probably sometimes we need, to, we need to add that we ought to go to church at least three, three Sundays a month, don't you think? And I think with your money, I think we ought to add that there's a certain minimum you ought to be given. And I think it would be good now that you're a Christian that you, you have to read your Bible every day and pray every single day. And about your sin, you just need to stop it. And I think on top of that, we ought to add that you need to share the gospel with at least one person a week. In other words, sometimes we just don't feel right about this unless we have something to contribute. And you see, with the Jews of Galatia, they thought that God would be pleased with their contribution to the gospel. They thought, we've been observing all these laws all, this, all these centuries, and now we have Christ, and God is just going to be so overwhelmed that we've got it all now. <laughs> we can observe all these laws, and, and He's going to be so happy with our behavior, and we have Christ Jesus who saved us. And we're going to help all those Gentiles learn the one true way. They needed to help the Gentiles learn the spiritual routine. And putting it in our day, it would be like taking someone who's just come to Christ and putting them through a course on how to make your lifestyle now be Christian. They need to start going to church regularly, of course. They need to change out their iPod music, get rid of that bad stuff, no more rap. Only praise and worship. They need to stop things that would detract from their witness, things like excessive drinking, smoking, cussing, breaking the speed limit, laziness, overeating. I know, that's the way I feel about it too. <laughs> These things just need to stop. And to help this happen, we think that every new Christian ought to have an accountability partner who they can call whenever they feel tempted to do these bad things, that can talk them off the ledge. And keep their witness pure. Paul doesn't take kindly to putting stuff on the grace of Christ. 
verses 6 through 10 say this. I am amazed. And that's not in a good way. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to what? To be corrected? He is to be accursed. And as we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He starts in with this word, amazed. Parents, you ever, you ever gone to your kids and go, I'm just amazed? He's saying, I'm shocked. It is unbelievable to me that if you have experienced the saving grace of Christ, that you would want to put anything onto that. It just, it just overwhelms my even capacity to think. <laughs> I think he's a bit testy here, a little bit angry. If you turn over to chapter 3 of Galatians, he just flat out says it in the first three words of chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. You see, this letter is a full frontal attack on the enemy of the gospel. And he's talking to the church. He accuses the Galatian Christians of desertion. He accuses them of selling out, compromising the simple purity of the gospel for this different gospel. But then he quickly says, that's not a gospel after all. The gospel is good news, and there isn't any good news when you have to live under this weight of rules and regulations and traditions. It was a distortion, a perversion. The point he's making is this. Revising the gospel is reversing the gospel. If you're going to revise it, you're reversing it. You're doing away with it. It's not a slight alteration. It is a total reversal. The word distort means to take something and twist it so much that it turns and bends the other direction. It actually becomes the opposite meaning. He says the gospel is above every messenger. He says, I, Paul, you know what I'm for. You know what I've taught you. You know that I've taught you the pure and simple gospel message of grace. He says, if I ever come to you in the future and I even alter that message, even one iota, I will be accursed. He takes it a step further. If an angel from heaven comes down and teaches you something that's in addition to grace for your salvation, let that angel be accursed. I think he means this. The word accursed is anathema. You know what that word means? Something that is dedicated wholeheartedly to evil. 
It's no small thing to Paul. Because this is the very heart of the gospel of Christ. So are we losing the simple gospel of Christ today? Are we losing the simple message of grace? The offer of Christ? Are we, are we attaching things because the deception can be so subtle? Our traditions or our preferences, our own past behavior become the baseline for which we operate our spiritual lives and we just kind of all, we just kind of mold into this. We kind of just kind of incorporate a lot of things. And if God's really going to be happy with me, yes, I'm going to have the grace of Christ, but I'm also going to live a certain way. I'm going to uh, not do that, do that. It's so easy to get traditions attached to grace, isn't it? I mean, we have to, be, we have to stand guard on this. I told you earlier, we're going to put a cross on that wall right there. Now, no one has actually said this to me, but what if someone said, you know, we're not really a church unless we have a cross on the front wall? Really? So, we need the grace of Jesus and a cross on the wall. Right? What is it for you? What's that thing you just can't let go of? Why does Paul use such strong speech? Dedicated to evil, accursed. Why does this matter so much? The first point he makes, he says, a different gospel means deserting Jesus Christ. Even if you believe in Jesus Christ, but you're attaching something else to that in order for God to be pleased with you, as something you do with Jesus, you're deserting Christ. You haven't just altered it, you're deserting Him, he says. To abandon gospel theology is to abandon Christ personally. We all behave and act out of our theology. If our theology has some legalistic rules and traditions and values, and that's going to be a part of everybody, I hold everybody to the same standard as me. If our life is going to be like that, we are going to live to the letter of the law, and we're going to make sure everybody around us does too. And now, if I took a vote in here, how many of you are legalists? I don't think we'd have anybody saying, you know, I'm all about rules and regulations. <laughs> but before we go too far in saying, you know, I'm a grace person. I'm all about grace. <laughs> Not a legalistic bone in my body. I want you to know that in chapter 2 of Galatians, who was Paul correcting? Peter and Barnabas. Peter and Barnabas, after Pentecost, had lost their <laughs> had lost their way when it comes to the purity of the gospel of grace. This is something we have to stand vigilant on. We have to be at, we have to understand every day when we get up in the morning, I look at the cross of Jesus Christ and I see him there, and I see that he died for me. And I'm overwhelmed with the fact that he would do such a thing for me. 
And I see the empty tomb, and I see the dead cross couldn't hold him, and death couldn't hold him, and he rose up. And we sang it this morning, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? I just knew, I just know that the life of Christ that I live is not because of me or anything I've done or deserve. It's just because he has given it to me. Because he loves me. And how could I go to him later in the day whining about how I was treated by somebody? You know? If I have a fresh awareness of this wonderful grace that he's given to me, how can I go and complain about not having enough money today? Come on, God. Even the most devoted followers of Christ can begin to be influenced and deceived to mix grace with their own behavior for justification before God. I'm here to tell you, believing a different gospel is deserting Jesus, minimizing what he did. Secondly, a different gospel is no gospel. It's all grace or it's no grace. I I, I don't... You can't sit here today and say, you know, I, I'm about 80% grace and 20% legalism. You can't even say I'm 99% grace and 1% legalism. I like grace a lot. But there's one rule everybody got to follow. When you start thinking your good behavior should be rewarded or your bad behavior should be punished, you've abandoned the gospel of grace. It's gone Temptation comes your way, a lustful thought, chance to talk about yourself, to gain someone's approval, defend yourself, whatever. Because of your fresh awareness of what he's done for you and what he's given you, there's a power that rises up. And I don't want to compromise this. I just, I don't want to build any distance between us. I want to be close to him. And folks, this is what separates us from all the other religions in the world. All other religions respond. They have God responding to man's behavior. If you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get punished. Christianity, it's not that it's not that. It's the opposite of that. Christ loves you. Christ extends grace to you. You've done nothing to deserve it. And the rest of your life, you live in response to this remarkable gift. You see the gospel of grace as God's unwarranted, unmerited, unearned grace. Oh, I want to protect that. I don't want it changed in the slightest. I don't want anything I've done to add to it. Because I realize if I do, if it is something about how good I am or I've lost it all. The third thing here, when he says the word accursed, is that the different gospel brings condemnation. You see, condemnation is that which reserved, is reserved for the unbeliever at death. It's, it's, it's what res, is reserved for the unredeemed, those outside of the grace of God. So, so let me ask you a question today. Do you ever feel condemnation in your life? Well, I'll ask a deeper question. 
Who is the main source of your condemnation? For most people, it's ourself. You, you look at something you did or you feel terrible and you decide you're just worthy of condemnation. In fact, it'd make you feel better if you got some little condemnation going. Right? I deserve it. And, and at that moment, I, I can't say this any more strongly, at that moment you must realize that you're trusting in a different gospel, which is no gospel which is a desertion of Jesus Christ. Because you think your behavior is part of the equation. You think your behavior added to the finished work of Christ is what gives you righteousness. Instead of that self-condemnation, you should recognize that you've turned from the simple truth of the gospel of God's amazing grace. You've put your eyes off of the reality of Jesus and onto your own behavior. You felt like you could handle things instead of Him. Maybe you just avoided Him. You went day after day, never realizing and and turning back to the fresh awareness of the gift of the cross and the, the gift of the Spirit through the empty tomb. So instead of self-condemning, you just turn back to Him. And I, I deal with this in so many different people's lives, in my own life, folks. And I'm just telling you today, we don't realize how embedded this wrong view of God is in the people of churches today. Take, for instance, this. Let's say a person is far from God. Let's say they grew up in the church and they just wandered away and they're living in sin and they're doing all kinds of terrible things. And one day they come to their senses and they say, you know, living like this is getting me in a lot of trouble. I'm not happy. I feel empty. And I remember growing up about the words of the Bible. I began to read the Bible and and I say, you know, I need to come to my senses and I need to get my life back right with God. So, how does that person go about doing that? Sadly to say, and I mean this wholeheartedly, sadly to say, usually what they do is follow the world's path of reconciliation. They say they're sorry for their behavior, they apologize to their family, they apologize to God, they make this vow to turn things around, they recommit their efforts to be a better person, And in fact, the church encourages that. Straighten up, stop your sinning, fly right, get back with God. Do it right. Come on. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to apologize and make restitution. It's not bad to have godly sorrow for sin. But remember this phrase. In fact, remember this phrase the rest of your life. Demanding relationships always create relational distance. That's good for any relationship. That's good for a marriage. Parents and kids. If I have to live up to your standards, there's going to be distance relationally. And so we do that with God. (laughs) We come to God and we say, God, I'm going to get my life right. I've been away from you. I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to fly right. I'm going to do what it says in the Bible. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to be righteous. 
Because your demands <laughs> necessitate it. I have to do this. And so, because demanding relationships always produce distance, and because I am trying to please him with my good behavior, guess what I grow? Distant. And the only thing that makes me walk in the godliness that I know to walk in is closeness. <laughs> and so I go through the whole routine again, and I say, well, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry I did that, Father. I will recommit myself to you again today, and recommit myself to doing better, and I'm not going to sin anymore, and I'm going to live righteous, and you're going to be so pleased with me. I'm going to, I'm going to study the Bible every day, I'm going to pray every day, and, and then in about... Some of you are better than me, you could make, maybe make it a week or two. And the demands of the relationship cause distance. And the, and the only thing that gives you the power to live a godly life is closeness. <laughs> Church I grew up in, we had altar calls. We had an altar down at the front. And we, many times they would give an altar call to go and get right with God. I had a tender heart for God, even from an early age. And so what did I do most every Sunday? Get it right again with God. Living under constant senses of guilt and shame. I want to give you an alternative. Can I, I just got to get to this alternative. In Luke 15, the prodigal son comes to his senses. He's, he's eating with pigs. He's, he's gone out there and made all these mistakes and got addicted to all kinds of things probably and just lived terrible. And he says, my life is a wreck. My life is terrible. Look where my behavior's gotten me. So I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to go tell my father that I sinned against him. I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. I'll make all these commitments and pledges to him and so he's, he gets up and he starts heading for his father and he's rehearsing his speech over and over and over so that his father might have mercy on him and decide it was okay to have him back in the house. And he approaches the house and his father meets him out on the road because his father was waiting for him. And we, we, we know the story, we know what happens, but you know what doesn't happen is this. I'm glad you finally came to your senses, son. And now if you're going to live in my house, I want you to know the way it's going to be. He didn't say that. And if you, live in your, if you live in my house, you've got an older brother that keeps all the rules really good. And he's going to watch over you to make sure you can be like him. Is that what the father says? What does the father say to the prodigal out on the road? <laughs> Trick question. Nothing. Because the son starts in with like what most of us would. I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry I did that. I will never do it again. I'm going to be better. I'm going to not sin. I'm going to be your man from here on forward. And the father says, my son who was lost is found. He's come home. Strike up the band. It's time to have a party. No condemnation. You see, the gospel is this story of how 
God looks at us in our places and says, I want you. I love you. And I know that the only way you're ever going to live the way you know you ought to live is close to me. It's, it's not about knowledge. It's not about teaching. It's not about understanding. And get me straight here. Because you can have a wonderful understanding of grace. You can have a wonderful theological understanding of the exchanged life. You can understand all of that. And you can live far from the person of Jesus. It's only the person of Jesus that lets us live the life of Jesus. I'm so glad he's not depending on me, aren't you? He is not depending on me. That's why it says in 1 Peter, he says, he has given us everything we need for godliness. Everything we need. It's not a partnership. <laughs> and when that grace becomes so real to us, the weight of trying to be good is lifted. There's freedom. There's such freedom. There's such love. And so, I'm at the, as we close here, I'm just, uh, my call to you today is to simply come home. Just to come home. Do you need to know that he loves you today? Do you need to know that you'll never be good enough? Do you just need to experience his amazing grace? And I guarantee you this, if you come home today, I can, I can guarantee his reaction. <laughs> Strike up the band. <laughs> Let's have a party. Amen. Father, sometimes your grace is hard to understand why you would do such a thing. And yet we know that's the only way we can ever have fellowship with you. And Father, I'm praying specifically for the person here today who has tried really hard to be a good Christian and feels like a failure. I pray, Father God, for the person who has been very diligent in trying to do the things that they thought would make them a good Christian and yet they feel inadequate today. They feel dry. They can't, they can't say that there's this overwhelming amazement with you and this, this overwhelming sense of joy in their life. And they do hold you accountable for some of the problems in their life. And they, they do want you to fix things and Oh, I pray, Father, for a right conception of you. I pray that the grace of God would so overwhelm us, not only today, but throughout this series and this book as we study it, that it would become so real to us and that we would be so convinced to rest in you, to abide in you, to just stay where you are. And let us each and every day be amazed at how good you are to us. How much we look forward to heaven. Father, 
speak to us in these closing moments.